past few decades, something has gone wrong in American life, leaving its citizens subject to increasing levels of coercion. That's the thesis of a new book, and its author, my guest on today's program, argues that what's gone wrong is a form of private tyranny, with corporations exercising more and more control over ordinary people's lives, eroding our freedoms, and generating uncertainty, stress, and economic precarity. Sarab Amari is a founder and editor at Compact Magazine. His new book is Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. Sarab Amari is my guest today on Lean Out. Sarab, welcome back to Lean Out. Thanks for having me, Tara. It's very nice to have you back on the program. As I've told you, this book really helped me to understand some things that I've been grappling with um, and have not been able to untangle. So I'm really excited to talk about it today. I think let's start today with the concept of tyranny. Um, I think the first instinct of some readers might be to think it's a bit hyperbolic to say that tyranny is at work in America, since the society is fundamentally based on consent rather than coercion. A good way to get into that conversation is to look at two opening examples from Tyranny, Inc., from two other countries, China and Russia. In one, a meatpacker in a Chinese slaughterhouse attempts to resist the state-owned company's oppressive policies during COVID. In another, a Russian employee of a state-run energy company is forced to attend a Putin rally. Walk us through these two examples and what they can tell us about the state of American liberty. Sure, happily. So let me let me just start with those two examples. It's one of the tricks, and it's not the only time this happens in the book where I set up something that you know people in the United States or in North America are used to viewing through a kind of familiar frame of tyranny is sort of what happens over there in these foreign lands with uh, governments that lack checks and balances like our own. And then I sort of reveal that the story that you just heard is actually something that took place in, in the U.S. And if I, well, all I did was I took news reports, actual news reports from like the New York Times or, you know, whatever, Washington Post. And I just changed the, the sort of the names and the, the geographical backdrop. But otherwise, I almost quoted them verbatim. And so if you look at these incidents in that kind of geographic frame of mind, they kind of lulled you into complacency. Oh, yes, you know, this Chinese company fired a uh, an employee. It's a state-owned company, so it answers to the Communist Party, and fired an employee because he objected to their COVID protocols and just in general just wanted, like, more sanitation as the pandemic was un- unfolding. This is before we understood COVID mitigation as we do now. This was in March and April of 2020. Um, and he was fired for that, for this kind of activism. It turns out that's not that did not happen in China, in a Communist Party owned slaughterhouse that happened in New York in on Staten Island at the JFK eight facility of Amazon. And the employee who was fired is um, named Christian Smalls. He's now become a union organizer. Um, likewise, the the Russian story. It wasn't Putin who demanded that workers at a state owned uh, energy company show up to one of his rallies on pain of losing pay that happened in the United States under under Trump with um, with with uh, with Shell, (laughs) you know, and it's it's workers in Pennsylvania who were forced to do that. So one of the 
sort of messages of the book is that there is such a thing as private tyranny, as privatized tyranny uh, or private coercion. Um, coercion is inevitable in our everyday life, in any kind of society, but it becomes tyrannical when, when it's merely for the benefit of a kind of either a politician or if it's for the benefit of a private actor. And so I, I try to argue that we should lose this tendency to draw a sharp distinction between public and private, especially in societies like ours, like the United States or Canada or Europe, where the private sector is quite large and it's where you spend most of your time. Um, that's where often we will face this kind of unjust coercion. Mm. I, I chose to replicate that opening rhetorical device because I did think it was so effective in illustrating why people have perhaps become so angry in an apparently free society. Um, but also because these examples implicate both sides of the political spectrum and show that this dynamic is increasingly prevalent in the private sector, not just the workplace, but also the experience we all have as customers and citizens as well. So there's a few lines that really stood out in the book's introduction, which I'll read now. Our most profitable companies are very good at delivering certain types of experiences, mainly instantaneity of all kinds, be it food delivery or porn. But the kaleidoscopic novelty, somehow it coexists with shockingly decrepit public infrastructure, the public services and facilities that supply the necessities of life and allow us to get around, stay healthy and live in community. All this while a relatively narrow elite lords over a class hierarchy whose obscene disparities would have left the plutocrats of the Gilded Age blushing. And as you point out, who consented to all of that? Can, can you unpack all that for us? Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, defenders of our present political economic arrangements, it has a name, it's neoliberalism, and we can go into how it differs from old fashioned classical liberalism, but it, it is it is the neoliberal order. They often say, well, it's like, well, it's a democratic, it's a democratic society. And we um, therefore that legitimates all this. But a lot of these developments, because they took place, you know, through the supposedly neutral and invisible hand of the market, there, there was no, there's no political give and take. What, what give and take do you have when you're suddenly barred from speaking on a privately owned social media platform, whether the owner is, you know, a, a right-wing Elon Musk or a left-wing, you know, Jack Dorsey, what degree of democratic leverage or ability to engage in back and forth did you really have when you were forced to sign you know, a terms of service agreement that is, you know, the length of a Tolstoy novel, you click agree. And now you say the typical defender of the system says, well, it's your free choice. You, you know, you can choose not to, but we're all, you know, there's, there's no escaping it. If you want to actually be heard in a meaningful way, you do it on these platforms. And that's just one example. And like I said, I mean, as, as that passage that you read points out too, that th there is this bizarre, disparity between our kind of technological prowess in a narrow way in the digital realm you know we have apps that can do incredible things and that but that goes along with uh, increasingly decrepit public infrastructure and i think again i i suggest there's a there's a reason for that because that's where that that's where that kind of app empty economy of virtual economy that doesn't produce anything of real lasting value is where a lot of investments gone and but the, but that itself is engineered it's not a sort of inevitable thing we've we've 
through our tax codes, through our labor laws, through all sorts of things, we've subsidized and incentivized those sorts of economic, those kind of quick buck economic activities, whether it's Silicon Valley's like kind of meaningless addictive apps or it's Wall Street's corrosive effects on the real economy, on the manufacturer economy, et cetera, et cetera. None of this is inevitable. It's not the result of natural developments or uh, so forth. They're, they're the results of political choices over which ordinary citizens had very little democratic voice. We've lost that democratic voice in our in our political economy. Mm. And it, you you do focus on the workplace quite a bit, which is which is super interesting because the kind of coercion in the workplace most people will be familiar with. I mean, I was thinking as I was reading this of a of an example of a office I worked in. There are strict labor laws on overtime in Ontario, but every mm-hmm. couple of months the company sent an email in which we had to click agree that we were actually working the set amount of hours and not working overtime, which we were working. Mm-hmm. In that mm-hmm. instance, as you point out in the book, there's an asymmetry there. There's the worker who needs to pay their bills, who needs to put a roof over their head. And then there's these massive you know, companies, organizations. It, that's not really a level playing field. There was a real interesting example in your book that stands out. That is the story of Alicia Fleming. Um, and this has to do with scheduling work hours with zero regard for workers' well-being. T- tell us that story. Yeah, sure. Alicia Fleming was a restaurant worker worker in Massachusetts, went into that line of work when she was a teenager, and then sort of gradually went up the the chain, as it were, of like the quality of the restaurants. Um, and it was all working well, you know, despite the flexibility that the industry increasingly demands, uh, until she became a, a mother. And then suddenly the, you know, life, work-life balance became kind of a crucible of of stress and misery. The reason for that is that like many other industries, but especially the service industry, where something like a 10th of the American population, you know, working population is engaged in, in retail and service, including restaurants, have has gradually shifted toward a model of what's called just-in-time scheduling, uh, often used with the help of with the help of computer algorithms. The the point is to uh, minimize labor costs for employers and taking into account periods of low demand. So it's it's a way to shift all the expenses associated with periods of low demand onto the worker. It used to be that both employer and employee would, they, they both pay a price when there aren't customers, right? If you give your workers a, a regular schedule that they, where they have control over and some sense of predictability over what when they come in, if you do that, then you both take a hit when there isn't enough demand. But what companies have tried to do in the service industry increasingly is to uh, shift all the expenses and all the downsides to employees by having these shifts that are very uh, last minute so that a third of such workers don't know their schedule until just days before. And others are, you know, similarly have this in a precarious sense on a weekly basis, what they're going to do. So they don't know their schedule or they do these things where the shift is canceled last minute if demand doesn't materialize or or they do what's called clopening shifts where the employees are only asked to come in for the opening and closing of the shop, but not for that middle period where the demand might be low um, or labor might be low. So and imagine what that would do to your day, Tara, like if you had to come in. Uh, from two to three thirty, and then go home, and then come back at like six to eight when it's dinner time or whatever, right? Like you have no sense of regularity, and 
sure enough, you know, there's been a lot of studies done that show that workers who are subjected to this kind of, like Alicia Fleming, workers who are subjected to this kind of just-in-time scheduling are more likely to be depressed, to be to sleep poorly. Their children tend to misbehave, to show signs of anxiety in school, to um, act out, to fight, to break things. It doesn't take rocket science to explain that because typically the parents don't have the ability to regularly, you know, spend time with them or do homework or what have you. And so, and, and as you said, I mean, the, the reason that this has come about and workers have had to put up with it is because of a gradual loss over several decades of workers' bargaining power, because there aren't unions in the picture, especially in the service industry. Um, and in all sorts of other ways, our laws increasingly advantage employers. Um, you really are at the mercy of employers. And there's a, there's a kind of basic asymmetry in the market that you mentioned is that typically in any market, there are far fewer employers than there are employees. So there are far fewer buyers of wage labor power than there are sellers of labor power. And when that is what, how that disparity works out is that any one uh, employee is much more dispensable uh, and has to put up with what's what's on offer, you know, take it or leave it, compared with situations where workers can join hands and collectively bargain. But that's become very hard in the United States as our laws have made unionization hard. So it's just one example of, you know, people say coercion, coercion, you know, and they, they, again, they think about coercion as what like the tax man does or what the police do or what foreign dictatorial foreign governments do. But your employer can coerce you quite dramatically. And one of the ways that employers do that is through employment contracts. What were some of the more kind of egregious clauses that you found in employment contracts? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, nowadays, when you get a job, you're typically given a lot. Typically, this happens after you've already accepted the offer, right? You, The offer just comes in an email. Hey, we'd love for you to join. The salary will be, I don't know, $75,000 a, a year. And you, sh you know, would love you to start in two weeks. And you've trekked maybe across the town, across the country, across the province or state, you know, show up to work. And then at that point, they give you all these agreements and it's again, it's a take it or leave it scenario in libertarian economic economic theory. The picture that they paint for you is that at that point you have the ability to negotiate and mutually come to an agreement on various clauses. No one does that. The advantage is all on the employer side. You've already you know, given up your previous job. You've maybe moved across the country, bought a new house, taken out a new lease or car or whatever, and you just sign. So what do you typically sign away? Well, increasingly, it's an enormous amount of, of surveillance. For example, the use of keylogger software to track everything you type, um, the ability to inspect and even confiscate your device, whether that's your laptop or your phone, and the that extends to your personal devices as well. If you use their networks, your device is subject to confiscation and surveillance, and they encourage you, by the way, to use your personal devices. So that's a very interesting example because you know again we're used to thinking of surveillance as what spy agencies do or surveillance is what the chinese government or the russian government or the iranian government does to its citizens and certainly it's true but in the american context it's a private actor who can typically subject you to pretty thorough surveillance another one that i thought was pretty egregious and i found it in the uh in the employment agreement of a major major company the person who gave it to me was a lawyer and so uh, was involved in that case against them. So I can't reveal the name of the company, but 
bottom line is that you you sign over the right to your your face, your your singing voice, your voice, all of that. Your your in essentially your persona, everything that to do with who you are, your face, your voice, your singing, etc. Now, why would they? Uh, they want that now typically in a, in a more innocent age that was because they just wanted to use your picture maybe in a training video or in a recruitment brochure but this contract says it's for commercial licensing and that you have no right of recourse you can't sue the person to whom your image or voice or likely your uh, likely likeness or etc is licensed to um, you can't sue them for privacy, for manipulating your picture and putting it in something that your picture that you don't want. Um, it's for it's for commercial purposes because now there is a huge market for digital human likeness data. All these companies would love to use your voice to figure out to improve their services like Siri or etc. But you could theoretically also use your voice, your picture, your picture could be leased uh, or licensed into a company that does digital sort of altered doctored pornography. And you would technically, if the courts in the United States went by the sort of strict freedom of contract, liberty of contract mentality or framework, then you have no recourse against that because you signed your agreement. You said you, you license your likeness to your employer who then is allowed to license it to any other third party and in perpetuity and that you have no right to you have no recourse to complain against either the employer or the party that subsequently took ownership of your likeness data and your right is denied in perpetuity forever so those are i mean and, and again think about the disparity that structures that relationship you the disparity in power you came in you just moved across the country, you signed a new lease, you signed a new lease on a car, et cetera. You show up to work the first day, they put this in front of you. You have to sign, no one no one refuses to sign and say, hey, actually, I disagree with this particular provision, can we strike it out? It's it's so, so wild. And, and, and then of course the courts are involved in all of this as well. And to illustrate an issue with the American courts, you turn to a Canadian example, the story of Toronto's David Heller. Tell us a little bit about that and what it, what it tells us about what's going on in the American court system. Yeah, so in Canada, uh, in Toronto, there was um, a, an Uber driver named David Heller. He was a driver for Uber Eats. Uh, he was doing well with the job for the first few weeks allowed him to, you know, he was making 400, 500, sometimes $800 a week. And that was a rare time, but occasionally he could make nice money like that. And, you know, it had that flexibility. He could take vacations and so on and so forth. But one day he received an email, email from Uber Eats saying that his wages would be drastically cut his and everyone else's, all the Uber Eats drivers in the Toronto area and the way it happened for many of them was uh the while they were making deliveries through uber eats the uber app sort of took over the gps directions and put in front of them this several page document and said you know you have to agree to this before you can move forward so like they couldn't continue to do a delivery job that they were on but by clicking agree on that agreement and it's like dense legally several pages so most people click click degree but uh heller refused to do so because he knew this was unfair and so he decided to instead to pursue a lawsuit 
And his lawyers told him, hey, you know, you could either sue individually in, you know, Canadian courts and maybe you'll get a nice payout, a tidy payout, or you can do it, do this as a class action for all similarly situated Uber Eats drivers to make a point. And he decided to go with the class action, which is also the more rational way to vindicate a case like this, because otherwise the amounts involved may be pretty small. So the only way to make, to rationally do this is by doing it as a class action. The problem was that when David Heller was first hired by Uber, he had signed, like everyone else, again, the, the 14 page, you know, agreement in tiny font size. And it contained a provision that said that any disputes have to be taken to arbitration, which is a kind of private court system where you don't have the typical, there's not a typical judge that the person who's the arbitrator doesn't even have to be a, a trained lawyer. It's all behind closed doors. There's no record of cases or kind of the kind of thing you typically expect from normal uh, litigation, traditional litigation. And by the way, the in this case, the arbitration chamber was in Amsterdam and it costs 14,000 euros just to file your case, let alone to travel there, to take time off of work. And so he appealed that. He, he, he sued in Canadian courts to say that this arbitration clause is unjust because remember, Heller makes something like 2,000 Canadian dollars a month for him to pay 14,000 uh, euros to have his case heard is just impossible. I and mean, that's just not something he can do. And sure enough, ultimately, the Canadian Supreme Court ruled eight to one that the, ar the arbitration clause was unconscionable and unenforceable. Now, the actual underlying case over the wages is ongoing right now, but, but he overcame the arbitration requirement uh, imposed on him by the, by the initial employment agreement. But I then say, you know, I pretend like this is happening in the United States, but then I reveal that no, this was in Canada. In the United States, the Supreme Court reached the exact opposite conclusion in an identical case, because the United States courts, especially since the 1980s, have come to favor arbitration more and more in the employment context, even though the law in the United States is called the Federal Arbitration Act initially was clearly in the legislative history and its intentions, even in this language, was not meant to be used in the workplace context, precisely because in the, the disparity in power between employers and employees. Uh, nevertheless, the Supreme Court, supposedly originalist justices who are supposed to uphold the intentions of lawmakers, uh, have gradually expanded the Federal Arbitration Act so that it applies in the workplace. So in the, in the American context, the comparable case is an Ernst & Young junior employee who was not paid overtime that was due to him during tax season. He works very many, many hours over the 40-hour statutory amount. So he was, he was supposed to receive overtime, but he was not paid that overtime. And, you know, Ernst & Young invoked the arbitration clause, which, by the way, wasn't in his original employment act agreement. It just came in a few weeks after he was hired where they said, oh, you know, if you if you show up to work the next day, you now agree to arbitrate all, all disputes. And it would have cost two hundred thousand dollars for him to litigate this individually. Ernst & Young accepted or did not challenge the fact that it would have cost this employee Morris two hundred thousand dollars to 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 litigate this individually, but nevertheless said, insisted that he has to go through individual arbitration rather than a class action lawsuit. And our Supreme Court, knowing that it would have been basically impossible for, for Morris, the employee, to vindicate his statutory rights, 
if he was forced to do arbitration, nevertheless insisted that he had freely contracted to go through individual arbitration. Again, upholding this fiction that employees and employers are on a symmetrical playing field and they both have symmetrical rights. And so when, when the employer hands down a sudden diktat saying you have to arbitrate your disputes going forward, well, there's no choice. You, you, you agreed to that already and you had, you, had, uh, you had freedom earlier to object to this. Now, no one has freedom to object to this in that way because you need to put food on the table the following day. You can't, you can't but show up to work the next day. So, you know, it's manifestly unfair. And uh, in this case, in this case, Canada is, and many others, frankly, in these kinds of areas, Canada is still not nearly as, a, as much of a sort of uh, economic wild west as the United States is. And another area that you focus on that I want to touch on is private equity. And mm -hmm. uh, you go through how private equity has used pension funds to privatize the very jobs of those who contribute to these funds. I really encourage everyone to read that section. It's incredibly eye-opening. And from that, we move to why, why are these stories not being covered. I mean, a firefighter, for example, doesn't have time to go through all of his kind of pe pension information and find out that it's now being used in terms of private firefighters. And and this leads us to the, the topic of the media, like the, the decline of this one watchdog that should have been reporting on the rise of this private tyranny, as you call mm -hmm. it. Um, and what we've seen is hedge funds buying up papers, laying off staff, closing outlets. This really hits home in Canada. We're, we're currently in a crisis in our media that I've been covering. I was just going to say, yeah. And Post Media, the big, biggest chain of newspapers, owns 90% of weekly and daily titles across the country. It's centralized much of its production to one newsroom in Hamilton. And there's evidence to suggest the hedge fund behind this is, is kind of more interested in servicing debt than doing journalism. So this is a this is a big story in Canada right now, too. Walk us through how this kind of financial wizardry has influenced American news and, and what we lose when we lose local news. Right, right. I mean, the scale of the problem is huge. Um, American newspapers went into a big decline beginning in the 2000s, early 2000s, as a result of the rise of the internet, frankly, of, of online advertising. And so already sort of big tech did a great deal of damage to a lot of papers. Thousands of papers closed during this, this period. But more recently, what's been happening is that the remaining papers are getting bought up by uh, hedge funds and private equity and hedge funds and private equity don't buy papers to sustain local journalism they mainly buy them to uh, they're like they're called cash flow operations so you just extract as much cash as possible out of them uh, how do you do that you lay off like 70 percent of the staff so you leave in place a skeletal staff um, you sell a lot of the real estate or lease it out for other things than you know news gathering and so papers become these either go out, you know, they're eventually are driven to the ground, but more often private equity holds on to them as like ghost papers. And what ghost papers do is they typically only do, um, you know, first of all, a lot of kind of vacuous advertorial type content. And then in between, they run mostly uh, national coverage because national coverage is easy to syndicate across many papers. Like you said, that's the kind of centralization that you were talking about. The problem with that is that the, you know, the, the local media watchdog function and that element of local media as being crucial to the local democratic conversation diminishes. So that, that has all sorts of negative effects. So for example, 
interestingly enough, bond ratings go up, uh, go down when local coverage is either destroyed altogether or severely constrained. Why? Because the tendency for, for public officials to act corruptly uh, goes unchecked when you don't have a local media watchdog. And so that causes ballooning costs for contractors and so forth. When local news goes down, uh, goes down or is severely constrained, people tend to, the conversation becomes much more polarized. Why? Because you're only reading national news. And so you then treat your local issues as well as ultimately a, as a referendum on like which team you like in the national conversation, whether it's Democrats or Republicans uh, in, in the United States or Tories and labor in Britain and so on and so forth. Um, so it feeds polarization. A lot of newspapers now, local newspapers in the United States don't even have for example, uh, reporters to cover uh, uh, their own de congressional delegations in Washington. Yeah, so studies show that, you know, when local news is is in the shape that it is, it causes people to be more alienated from from their local community. People who don't know local news don't vote in local elections either, et cetera, et cetera. This is all just you know basic small d democracy stuff that um, you know the American founding fathers thought was really important, which is why they not only created the First Amendment protecting a the right of a free press to be unmolested by censorship, but also why they even went further than that and and subsidized postage uh, for for magazines and periodicals, which. It was, a, it was a benefit or a subsidy that was in place for until relatively recently. Um, why? Because if you're not locally engaged, your community goes to hell. Um, and also, I mean, it, it creates, as I said, this kind of polarization that where people um, can only talk about national issues. Everything becomes a national culture war. And meanwhile, like other mundane things like garbage collection and the quality of education, health services, you know, environmental issues, pollution, et cetera, can actually decline because it's all, all that people focus on is like team Trump versus team Biden. And, I, or, and, and similar developments in Canada, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm. So and it, when private equity and hedge funds take over papers, when they don't run them to the ground, they just make it all about uh, local coverage just dissipates, mm. make it all about national coverage. And that's purely an economic driven decision because it's cheaper to just syndicate the same national content across multiple papers. It's 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 so interesting and also very disturbing. Um, but I want to spend the last few moments we have together talking about the way out here. And you've proposed an alternative to this. And as you point out, there was already an alternative to this, which has more to do with market realism as opposed to market utopianism and a, a system of more managed capitalism like that, which we saw under New Deal policies and an encouragement of the countervailing power of organized labor. All of this has been eroded under neoliberalism driven by depoliticization. So I just want to read your definition of that before we kind of move on to some some ways forward. You define depoliticization as a systemic attempt to foreclose the very possibility of ordinary people using political power and workplace pressure to get a fair shake out of the economy. This is brought about by conditioning us to accept private coercion as a matter of competitive rationality rather than seeing it for what it is, a political choice made by the asset rich for their benefit, frequently at the expense of the asset less. So the answer you're advocating for here is, is a, is a repoliticization. What, what might that look like? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, any number of issues where we've been told, you know, this is the inevitable outcome of natural, you know, economic developments are actually the result of uh, choices that we made. Here, I can only speak, you know, intelligently in the American context, though I suspect it's somewhat similar in the in the Canadian context. But in the American context, we're told that, you know, the fact that we no longer do manufacturing jobs, uh, that our economy is so heavily focused on um, services, is just a, it's a matter of competitive rationality. It's it's because of globalization or automation came about, and you know, not really. I mean, we the United States made a choice to neglect industry uh, and allow corporations to ship industrial manufacturing jobs overseas in pursuit of worse environmental standards, lower labor costs, and less transparency. So it's a kind of arbitrage which we encourage through the sort of free trade fanaticism of the of the 1990s and early 2000s. So that's 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 a, a clear example of what I mean, that we shouldn't allow our politicians and sort of the elite media apparatus that apologizes for the current state of affairs to convince us that any of these things is, is natural. There's nothing natural or foreordained about Vietnamese labor markets being brutal and the workers over there being brutalized and hyper exploited. That's just the result of laws. And there's nothing, it's not like those set of conditions are like unique to Vietnamese soil. And therefore it's just inevitable that Vietnam would have a natural quote unquote advantage or comparative advantage to the United States uh, over issues like that. Those con those conditions are created by law and politics and the political conditions that allow firms to you know, disinvest in the communities, you know, in the developed world in places like Canada and the United States, the communities that allowed them to flourish in the first place, divest from those and go elsewhere to to seek after uh, lower wages. None of that is natural. Those are all the result of political choices. Likewise, the decline of the American labor union, again, it's not something as, that's as drastic in Canada, but in the decline of the American labor union um, is first of all, not entirely due to automation and manufacturing. In fact, automation and manufacturing are only a minor component of that. It's mainly the result of, uh, again, laws passed by mainly Republican administrations and, and by conservative Supreme Court justices and Republican dominated national labor boards that have made it over the period of past 70 years that have made it harder and harder to organize a workplace. So that can be reversed. It's not, you know, we often hear people say, not just conservatives, liberals will say it too. It's like, well, that was a nice time when we had the New Deal and so forth, but just like the conditions aren't there anymore, as though the conditions themselves aren't subject to, you know, human political choice. I wonder, I mean, thinking it through the both the establishment right and the establishment left are invested in this current status quo, which is is making a small amount of people very, very rich. And then you have the vast majority of ordinary people, working class people, middle class people who are really consumed with the business of just trying to make ends meet and to navigate these crazy systems. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't leave a lot of people left to kind of forge a systemic overhaul, the kind of change you're calling for here. How, how do you see this coming about? Um, I, so I do think that it, some things are are changing. I think the populist pushback that we saw on both sides of the Atlantic has forced the rethink, for example, on free market fanaticism or free trade fanaticism, I should say. 
some of the critiques of the anti-globalization movement that I mounted when I was in my 20s and a young sort of Trotskyist have now become sort of conventional wisdom at the Biden White House and, and the Financial Times editorial page. And so I think partly the crises of the system itself, as they were revealed by the pandemic, the fact that, you know, supply lines were stretched uh, so thin that they could they could snap at any point. The fact that we, you know, it suddenly turned out the U.S. can't make its own, you know, antibiotics or can't make its own masks and personal protective equipment revealed this hollowness to the neoliberal economy that's forced the rethink among elites. And so, I don't I, I, on certain things, especially I think sort of trade with China. I don't think we're going back to the sort of where we were before. And and so that, that that's positive. And you know, I don't know if how much you've noticed because uh, I know you're you're based there and you have your own Canadian conversations. It's not necessarily you have to pay attention to American ones, but the Biden administration has sort of explicitly said that the U.S. has entered a post neoliberal phase. Um, what they're doing with industrial policy, uh, with reshoring manufacturing, suggests that. But in terms of like organizing and you know, what, what you said, like sort of pushback from below, which is essential. There's just, there's no way around it, but to do it. And so that's, that's what I end my book with is a kind of call to, because there are lots of courageous workers like David Heller in Canada, for example, the Uber worker who resisted arbitration, like other workers that I mentioned, for example, Alicia Fleming that we talked about, you know, subsequently has become a, uh, a, an activist to try to stop these kind of very precarious scheduling practices. So, I believe in pressure from below, I, I, you know, and so um, I, I have to be hopeful that that works. And that pressure from below can then sometimes interact with shifting elite understandings, which is also necessary. So the American New Deal, which brought about, you know, our current, so many of the sort of entitlements we have, social security, labor organizing being finally legalized, et cetera, that was the result of pressure from below, from the labor movement, et cetera, but also kind of elites recognizing that, you know, something has to give, otherwise you're going to have serious social instability. So that combination of the two has worked, at least in the American context in the past, and so in the United States context in the past. So one would hope that it can work again. And certainly, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad, you know, and I want my kids not to inherit such a so obscenely unequal society is just really unhealthy. Wherever they themselves may end up at in the sort of social ladder, it, it's just you, you can't have the ideals that we aspire to and the degree of inequality that we actually live with. Mm. And it strikes me one of the things that is quite exciting about the moment that we're in right now is the fact that you are seeing uh, writers and thinkers across the ideological spectrum coming together to to refocus on material conditions, something Compact Magazine does very well. Uh, talk to me just to close a little bit about what this moment looks like. Well, I mean, I think it, it's, it's sort of weird because, like I said, the establishment has taken on some of these critiques in the Biden administration, you see that. Um, and so that, that puts people like me who are more populous in an, in an odd position, how do we react to that? Um, but, you know, I, for me, you know, having, I've, I come from the right and maybe some of your listeners listening to me might be surprised to hear all that, but I'm, I, my, I'm certainly on many cultural issues, I'm actually pretty conservative. Um, and what we tried to do over the past five, six years is to 
so-called realign the right, right? To, to shift the right toward a more pro-working class agenda. And I think as Michael Lind has argued in Compact, the magazine that I co-edit with Matthew Schmitz, um, argued in our pages, that model doesn't work of having just one side become pro-worker and then you know the other side is left representing other social classes. You, what you need is a kind of consensus that emerges in the middle you know, that replaces the neoliberal consensus. The neoliberals themselves were, you know, they built in the middle, they started at the fringes, but then at one point they became the bipartisan consensus of left and right, not just in the United States, but across the developed world. So that, you know, famously, you know, Margaret Thatcher was asked, what's your greatest, greatest achievement? And she said, Tony Blair. Um, so people who want to move beyond neoliberalism have to think similarly in terms of how do we build a consensus that spans multiple factions across geography and society, across sections, geography, classes, etc., and brings left and right together. And there are nice signs of that, you know, Senator J.D. Vance, who's a Trumpy Republican, and frankly, I should say a friend of mine is working with Liz Warren, who's a Democrat, on, you know, reining in banking executives. So that kind of alliance between between left and right promises to bring about a new consensus, a new center that can replace the neoliberal model. That's where I see the hope, too, is, is building a new center, not just what we tried to do, what people like me, like populist conservatives tried to do during the Trump years, which is to sort of just realign the right and then use it as a cudgel to bash the left. That that did not work well. Well, I think this is such a strong book. I hope that it's a game changer book and I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. So kind of you. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>